Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. After 12 hours of talks in North Macedonia this weekend, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, announced that Kosovo and Serbia had reached an agreement to implement an EU-backed deal to normalize relations. This has been welcomed by many as an important and historic agreement as flare-ups between the two have fed worries about a return to conflict. The two sides, however, stopped short of actually signing the agreement, and questions remain about what the next steps will be. Professor James Kerr Lindsay joins me to break down this latest deal and look at what it could mean for the region. Professor James Kerr Lindsay is a visiting professor at the University of Kent, a research associate at the London School of Economics, and has written extensively on the Balkans and Southeast Europe, including on Serbia and Kosovo. James, it's great to have you on the Greek Current. Thank you very much indeed for the very kind invitation. James, this weekend saw major news emerge from the Balkans as Serbia and Kosovo agreed on an EU plan that could normalize relations. Could this be a game changer for the region? Personally speaking, I would tend to think not. It certainly, on the face of it, seems to be an important step. But I think for all sorts of reasons, this is going to fall far short. And we have a history of seeing these apparent breakthroughs, which in the end don't come to very much. And this has been a particularly sort of a roller coaster ride in terms of how the proposed agreement has developed. So it started off, it was introduced as a French-German plan. There was talk that it was going to be based on the two Germanys model. I was very skeptical about that for all sorts of reasons, not least of all because the two Germanys model was based on eventual reintegration, whereas, of course, what we're talking about in the case of Kosovo and Serbia is managed separation. And then there were a number of changes that were made to the agreement, which gave me far more hope that this actually looked to be something fairly substantive. And then, of course, we get to the final agreement, which was not in fact signed. And it seems very, very light on detail. And this is going to be the huge problem that we've always encountered. It's about sequencing. It's about implementation. None of this is laid out in a way that I think most observers feel is particularly satisfactory. James, before we get into some of the key points of the agreement, what has finally brought Serbia and Kosovo to the table? You know, Why are we seeing a breakthrough now where before there really was no progress? I think there are a number of reasons for it. I think part of it is to do with the war in Ukraine, which has given a greater sense of urgency in many Western capitals about trying to keep the lid on any particular or potential tensions in the Western Balkans. And we have seen that not only in recent years, but certainly in recent months. There was an incident late last year where Kosovo started to insist that Kosovo Serbs use Kosovo number plates. And this led to a standoff, it led to barricades, and it led to fears that we could actually see some sort of violence. Now, I think we have to be careful. We're not talking about regional wars or anything. We're not talking about Serbia invading Kosovo. NATO, after all, still has a, a very substantial presence in Kosovo. But you could see instance on the ground, which, as we all know, in those sorts of circumstances, have the potential to blow up and get out of control. So, you know, this isn't something that's going to lead to regional war, but it's also not something that we can just dismiss and say, you know, there's not going to be serious fighting. There could still be very serious intercommunal fighting. So this is the sort of thing that was also spurring the sense in Western capitals that something needed to be done, that there is also a fear that Russia could be manipulating the situation, that it's encouraging nationalist sentiment in certain quarters in Serbia. And that obviously is the last thing that anyone needs just at the moment. And I think there's also a sense in the European Union that, you know, 
this is one of the two key outstanding problems in the Western Balkans, along with Bosnia, which is mired in political dysfunctionality and has been for a very long time. And for many of us who look at the Western Balkans, the sense was, if you'd asked me six, seven years ago, I would have said, look, there were three issues that we needed to deal with in a particular order. And that would have been the famous Macedonian name issue, which eventually was settled between Greece and North Macedonia. The second was Kosovo-Serbia. And then once you had those out of the way, then we could turn to the big issue of Bosnia. And I think that this is something that maybe now that has sunk in, that you know, if we want to try and get an overarching, peaceful, stable Western Balkans, now we've dealt with the problems between Greece and North Macedonia. Next, you deal with Serbia and Kosovo. And then finally, we turn to the really troublesome and problematic issue of Bosnia. Bring us back to the deal from this weekend. You know, what are some of the key points that you think need to be highlighted here? And what is it about the deal that makes you skeptical? So essentially, it's difficult to say what the key points are because it's not entirely clear now what the key points were. So as it was laid out originally, the plan was going to be that Serbia was effectively going to drop its objection to Kosovo joining any and all international organizations. And in return, the government in Pristina was going to implement a mechanism that would allow for meaningful autonomy for the Kosovo Serbs. And that had traditionally been framed in terms of something called the Association of Serbian Municipalities. And what we've actually seen in this final agreement is a lot of that has been taken out. So they've removed the talk of the association of Serbian municipalities, and they're now talking about meaningful self-government for Kosovo Serbs. At the same time, Aleksandr Vucic, the president of Serbia, has made it clear that he is absolutely not going to accept Kosovo's membership in the United Nations. And in some ways, one can see why that really has to be the last step in all of this. It's extremely politically sensitive for Serbia. And it actually puts Serbia in a very, very difficult spot. Because once Kosovo joins the United Nations, that's it. It's game over for Serbia. Because it then becomes faintly ridiculous for Serbia not to recognize Kosovo, because the rest of the world will have. It won't just be the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Italy. Japan, South Korea, Australia, the main Western and Western-leaning countries, it would also mean that China and Russia has also accepted it. And at that point, as I said, it seems a bit ridiculous for Serbia to say, we don't recognize them when the rest of the world does. It would look like it's a bit sulking in the corner while Kosovo enjoys the party. So to my mind, that really is the obvious end goal in all of this eventually. But it's how we get there and how Serbia can be persuaded to accept that. And that rests on this principle of meaningful autonomy for Kosovo's Serbs. So I think, you know, talk of Serbia permitting that now was perhaps premature in all sorts of different ways, as I say, from a domestic standpoint and in terms of sequencing to try and get to a final outcome. In the meantime, Pristina itself has been dragging its feet. And many people feel that Albin Kurti, the prime minister of Kosovo, has absolutely no intention to see the Kosovo Serbs get more autonomy. There's been all sorts of complaints that this is going to be a recreation of Republika Srpska in Kosovo, which it isn't in any way, shape or form. And, and Western diplomats are very keen to point this out. But nevertheless, Albin Kurti doesn't seem to be really that intent on introducing the autonomy. And maybe President Vucic felt that. 
So I think there's a real sense that this has really become now a PR exercise for the Europeans, for the United States, to a certain extent, rather than something and meaningful that has the potential to start pushing Kosovo and Serbia towards what everyone hopes will be a final agreed settlement at some stage. James, while EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell tweeted this weekend that there was a deal, the two sides stopped short of actually signing the agreement. Should this be a cause for concern? Well, I think this sort of really underscores that point that they weren't ready to reach an agreement. And he said, we've got to take something out of all of this and show the world that something has been achieved. And so they're saying, oh, well, we've given verbal assurances. Now, quite exactly what went on and who's responsible is difficult to say. Now, it does seem on balance that it was President Vucic who was more concerned about reaching this agreement. Now, he had his concerns, the concerns that I sort of painted. And Personally speaking, I feel that many of those concerns are legitimate, that, you know, there are real questions about whether Prime Minister Kurti is genuinely interested in implementing any sort of autonomy agreement with the Kosovo Serbs. But it does seem that Serbia was the side that was more reluctant to sign on the dotted line. And I think also, apparently, we saw changes in the implementation annex. So there's two parts of it. There's the main agreement and then the implementation. The main agreement was published actually a few weeks ago. And then the implementation was what they met at the weekend to decide on. And I think we were all expecting something that was going to be sort of fairly meaty that would sort of clearly paint, you know, Within three months, this is going to happen within six months and in return and some sort of proper sequencing that the sides could be held to. And it was very shallow on all of that. It was just more of a a wish list, which frankly didn't seem to be anything more than the original agreement that had been put on the table and which had been adjusted. So I think in many ways, it seems very disappointing. And the fact that it hasn't been signed, I think, is something that will be signal of concern for many observers as well. So it's ultimately difficult to see what next steps will be then? Yes. I think my feeling was always that this wasn't going to achieve a lot. We've seen these agreements come and go in the past. I mean, I'm of the belief that the EU should have been more ambitious on all of this. And that, look, I know that it's a very controversial subject, you know, and that passions can be inflamed on this issue on both sides. But i felt that we need to reach a proper, full, final negotiated settlement between Kosovo and Serbia. I was always very critical of the way that the Artisari process was handled. I think it was atrociously badly handled, to be frank. And I felt that a lot of mistakes were made that had left both countries in limbo as a result of this. And frankly, there have been routes that could be taken to get us out of this problem. You know, and the reality is, look, Kosovo isn't going to be part of Serbia again. And most people in Serbia, I think, had readily accepted that. But they felt that the way that the process had been handled had been fundamentally unfair towards Serbia. And I I think there's a certain degree, I think that view in many ways is justified. But at the same time, it's now finding a way to overcome those differences. And I think that there were ways that could have been done. And I think the EU and the United States could have been a lot more ambitious in all of this. Now, I have to just point out that you'll hear people say that one of the things that you could have done is promise Serbia a quick membership of the European Union. And notwithstanding the fact that I'm British and, you know, UK these days obviously has a complex relationship with the European Union, but I've spent a lot of my career working on EU enlargement. And that was simply not possible. The EU is built on rule of laws. It means that the members have got to follow those laws. You can't 
fast track the procedure. It would be like fast tracking a new state into the United States if it's got none of the laws aligned. Uh, and the US, for example, has health and safety rules on agriculture. Introducing a new country or new state which didn't meet those would be highly problematic. And so just to try and simplify why it isn't quite as easy to introduce a new member to the EU as some people might think. So you can't have a shortcut for it. But there's all sorts of other things that could have been done in terms of, you know, increasing expenditure in Kosovo and Serbia, preparing the way, offering more technical expertise for this process and sending out a stronger signal that the EU is genuinely interested still in EU enlargement. And this, in many ways, has been the biggest problem in recent years, that there's a real sense in the Western Balkans that the EU is no longer committed to enlargement, no longer committed to taking in the countries of the Western Balkans into the European Union. And this, I think, lies at the heart of a lot of what we're seeing. So the EU will say this agreement is an attempt to show that that commitment is still there. But we need a lot more. We really need much, much more from France, from Germany, from Italy to really send that message to the region that, look, if you can get past this issue, then there's going to be all sorts of improvements that we can see and hopefully a faster track EU process that's underpinned by all sorts of, as I say, other steps that can be taken to support that. James, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. In other news, NATO Chief Jan Stoltenberg urged member countries to speed up increases in defense spending as new figures showed fewer than a quarter of them meeting the alliance's target. Seven of the alliance's 30 countries met the current goal of spending 2% of GDP on defense in 2022, according to estimates in the NATO Secretary General's annual report, released on Tuesday. Greece, which had the highest rate of expenditure as a share of GDP, the US, Lithuania, Poland, the UK, Estonia, and Latvia all met the target. NATO leaders are expected to agree on a new target at a summit in Vilnius, Lithuania in July, and Stoltenberg said 2% of GDP should now be seen as a minimum. Finally, the Greek Defense Ministry is expected to decide next week whether Athens will propose to Lockheed Martin inclusion of SSI, which is Security Supply Information, and Infrastructure Programs in the F-35 fighter jets package with the participation of the Greek defense industry. The SSI would resolve the issue of infrastructure for the reception of the F-35s in 2027 to 2028. Otherwise, if this infrastructure is not in place, the delivery of the aircraft in that time frame will be difficult. The issue of SSIs is critical for the Pentagon since it is the most common method of transferring know-how. The details of the Greek proposal were discussed at a meeting last Thursday at the Defense Ministry between Greek and U.S. delegations. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.